If you've been here the last month or so, you'll know that we are in the middle of a teaching series going through the book of Mark called Heaven at Hand. And the whole idea of this teaching series is that in the Gospel of Mark, we see heaven at arm's reach. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being at hand. So heaven, what it should be like when Jesus comes in all its fullness, the presence of God fills the earth, is at hand in the person of Jesus. So therefore, we can reach out and we can touch heaven on earth. And the thing about the grand narrative of the Bible, if you read it as a whole, is that you soon discover at the beginning, heaven and earth were never meant to be two separate places. And so the story of Mark is Mark's retelling of the person of Jesus who brings it back together again in himself. And so as we read Mark, we discover him doing that in many different ways. And we've um, learned so much over the last, the kind of first three chapters. We took a break last week, didn't we, for Pete? And now we're back in on chapter four. And I'm going to focus in on one story in this chapter. And I think it's particularly apt this morning, particularly in the context of remembrance and some of the songs that we've just sung. So let me read it. This is Jesus Calms a Storm. It's Mark 4 from verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats around him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The reason I feel like that's particularly relevant this morning, and I hadn't noticed until I read it, is the prayer that we prayed at the end of the two-minute silence starts like this. It says, ever-living God, we remember those whom you have gathered from the storm of war into the peace of your presence. And then this is a profound line in the prayer. It says, may that same peace calm our storms. May that same peace calm our storms. And in many ways, we can read a story like that in the Gospel of Mark, which actually happened physically in our time and space dimension. And many biblical scholars and historians look at stories like that and say there's evidence in the story that it actually happened because there's irrelevant detail in it. So Mark didn't need to tell us that other boats went out with Jesus' boat. Mark didn't need to tell us that Jesus was sleeping on a cushion. And a lot of historians look at those kind of details in the Gospels and say that points to the fact that these stories really happened. Because in ancient literature, particularly in ancient literature that was about legends and myth, they wouldn't have included those kind of irrelevant details. When we read books these days, they include those details because they want to make it believable. They want to engage us with the story. But that wasn't the case in those kind of writings at the time. So many historians see that this happens. And so in one sense, this is a story about a bunch of fishermen, disciples in a boat, a storm comes up, and then Jesus rebukes the storm. It's a physical story of terror. Any one of us here would be terrified if we were in that same boat. But on another level, on a deeper level, 
This is also about other storms that we experience in life and go so much deeper than simply the physical. I believe that our life, or indeed our faith if we're Christians, can sometimes feel a little bit like that storm in the boat. It's like you're going along, things were going really well for Jesus and the disciples. Jesus was beginning to reveal his true identity. He was beginning to show the disciples the power that he had to see heaven and earth come together again. And then they get on a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they experience this storm. And there's wave after wave coming over the boat. And the disciples were bailing water after bucket after bucket out of the boat. And then finally they realize that they're about to drown. And in so many ways, that can be said of moments that we go through in life when it feels like wave after wave of circumstances that are wrong just hit us again and again. And after the first wave, sometimes we can get back up again and we say, we've got this, we can do this. And then another wave hits us and we're down and we get back up and we say, you can do this, I've got this. And then another wave hits us and we start to lose strength and we get back up slowly and then another wave hits us and we start to feel a little bit like the disciples, what does that feel like? It feels like being helpless and out of control. And the emotions that are evoked within us when we feel helpless, we start to control are horrific. We start to feel genuine fear. We start to question ourselves. We question our own abilities to do life and to be able to function on a normal level. And if we have faith, The common experience when we go through those moments of wave after wave coming at us, we start to question God. We start to question whether God even cares about us. Why is he letting this happen to us? We start to question whether he's even good. And it's hard to take. Just a few things to notice in this story First thing to notice is that this storm was incredibly powerful. In verse 37, it's described as a furious squall, which I think is fantastic. Don't know what it means, but it's a powerful storm. The reason we know it's a powerful storm is because these disciples were experienced fishermen, right? Remember, they were fishermen when Jesus called them. And what's more, they weren't just experienced fishermen. They would have fished on the Lake Galilee many times. They knew that it was subject to all these storms. There's lots of geographical facts about it, like it's 200 meters below sea level. It's next to this huge mountain, and so cold air and warm air somehow interact at some point from some direction and lots of storms are created. I'm not into geography. Some of you will know what that means. But basically, there were lots of storms. And so for the fishermen who are used to storms on this lake happening, this must have been an almighty storm because they thought they were about to die. And so therefore, this is probably more like a hurricane. So the first thing to notice is this is a mighty storm. It's a big one. It's so big that experienced fishermen think they're going to die. Second thing to notice, verse 39, is that Jesus is even more powerful than the storm. They wake him up and he speaks to it. He says, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. 
Now, in ancient Near Eastern literature, like the sea was representative of the chaos of life. So everything that wasn't right with the world was kind of almost, um, the sea was a representation of what was going on. So everything that doesn't feel like heaven on earth, which is how it's supposed to be, the sea was a representation of. And so therefore, in ancient Near Eastern literature and ancient literature in general, only gods would have been able to control the sea. No mere human would be able to control the sea. And so when Jesus speaks to the wind and rebukes it, the wind dies down. And then we're told he says to the sea, be still, and it suddenly goes calm. And the word there in the Greek means it goes as still as glass. You can see your face in it. The disciples would have been looking at Jesus and thinking, you are truly God. The storm is powerful, but Jesus is even more powerful than the storm. Third thing to notice, and this one's funny, the disciples can't control the storm, and we know this, right? We can't control the weather. We can't control the storms. In many ways, we can't control the circumstances that come at us in life that feels like wave after wave is coming at us. It feels like we're trying to bail water out of the boat, but no matter how hard we try, we're sinking the whole time. We can't control those things that come at us. But notice this as well. The disciples can't control Jesus, which is interesting Why do we know this? How do we know this? Because Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. In fact, there's this brilliant moment. We're told that Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Firstly, how do you sleep when there's a hurricane going on? Secondly, as the disciples say to him, they shake him and they say to him, Jesus, don't you care? Do you not care that we're drowning here? Can you help? And they wake him up and he rebukes the storm. A couple of years ago, there were a number of circumstances in my life that felt totally out of control. It felt as though the disciples must have felt physically, felt emotionally to me. It felt like there was just wave after wave of things coming at me that I couldn't control. Um, There was nothing I could do to um, make the situation right again. And I don't do well with being out of control, if you know me. Um, My wife knows me. Many of you will know me here. I'm not great. I mean, who is good at being out of control? But I'm not very good at it. I like to be in control. And so therefore, when there's stuff going on that I am out of control of and I can't get control of, I start to feel uneasy. And when these things happened to me a couple of years ago, it just felt like I was just carrying on. I was just trying to, as far as I could, just keep my head down and going straight through the storm. Um, And this kind of went on for a while. It felt like it was a sustained period of these waves coming at me. And I was going into work one morning on the tube, as I always did, and it was packed as it always was. And about halfway into my journey on the tube, I suddenly realized I couldn't breathe. I was starting to feel really short of breath, and that's not normal for you. I've not had that experience before. And as I'm standing there in the tube, this was just getting worse and worse. And it got to the point where the next tube stop, I had to literally push my way out of the carriage and run up the stairs um, up out of the tube because I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I kind of shook it off. Never happened to me before, but I walked on to work and got on with my day. Um, a couple of weeks later... Um, 
Hanel and I were getting ready to go out on a date night. We had babysitters. And if any of you parents know, when you have babysitters and there's a date night, the kids, even if you don't tell them, know that they don't go to sleep on time at that night. And they were kicking off. It was chaos. And so we're trying to get the kids to sleep. We're trying to get out. And finally, we get them down. And we go out in the car. And I start off the drive. I get in the car. I start driving down our road. And suddenly, I have exactly the same experience. I couldn't breathe. Really shallow breath. Had to stop the car. And Hanel had to drive. And then a third time, a couple of weeks later, it happened again. And I went to see a doctor. And the doctor listened to these three experiences. And he said, Ben, those three experiences you've just had are panic attacks. And it hit me like a bus. Because as a church leader, I dealt with lots of people who suffered from anxiety, who'd had panic attacks, and prayed with lots of people who had anxiety and panic attacks, but I never thought that I would myself would suffer from it. And if any of you here have ever suffered from anxiety, you'll know that it's crippling in so many different ways because it's something that you can't just try harder to get on top of. It's not something that if you wake up with a positive mentality, you can just start getting on top of the things that feel out of control because it is all about being out of control. Whether that be really out of control, so stuff, circumstances are coming at you that you can't get control of, or whether it's a perceived out of control. There's things in the future that haven't even happened yet, and all you're doing is you're thinking constantly of the worst-case scenario of what's going on. And it's crippling, and it's hard to live life, and it totally destroys our faith, to be honest. Why does it destroy our faith? Because it feels exactly like the disciples felt on the boat. There's wave after wave after wave coming at us, and all we do as Christians in that when we pray is, Jesus, why aren't you stopping this? Don't you care? It feels like you're not even there. It feels like you're not answering my prayers. And the thing to notice about this story is that, yeah, we can't control the storms, but in so many ways, we also can't control Jesus. And the temptation when we can't control Jesus, and by what what I mean by that is we're praying for things to happen or stop happening, and we want Jesus to do it right now, is that we put onto Jesus, we project onto Jesus the emotion that he does not care about us. He is doing nothing about our own circumstances. God is asleep. God is not answering my prayer. And so what is the solution to this for us as Christians? Well, if we look at the passage, um, the disciples obviously have this experience. They wake Jesus up. Jesus deals with the circumstances around them. He rebukes the storm. Everything's still. And then he turns to his disciples and he says this, why are you so afraid? Seems like a ridiculous question to ask them. Why are you so afraid? And then he says this, do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? Now, There's many stories about the disciples in the Gospels where when we read them, normally we we point fingers and we go, they are idiots. What idiots? I can't believe they did that. What stupid people. This is one of the few stories in the Gospels where you read it and you see the circumstances around it and you go, I completely understand their reaction. It makes perfect sense. Everything they're doing there makes perfect sense. In fact, I would be asking exactly the same questions of Jesus as they were. How is he still asleep in the boat? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus' reply is, do you still have no faith? Where is your faith? 
Now, for the disciples in the boat, they wouldn't have known this, but for the first century Jewish people reading this story, there's something profound that Mark does in this story, and it's something that we can draw out now, 2,000 years later, and that's this. In his retelling of this story, Mark is essentially setting it up as almost identical to the story of Jonah and the whale. Now, if any of you have ever read the story of Jonah and the whale, it's one of the oldest stories ever written. You'll know that God gives Jonah a plan, tells him, I need you to go to Nineveh, I need you to tell them about me, ask them to repent. And Jonah decides to turn in the opposite direction and says, I'm not going to do that. Probably because he was racist, he didn't like the people that God told him to go and save. And he finds himself on a boat, exactly the same situation here. There's a boat with the disciples, there's a boat with Jonah. Similar situation, a storm comes up. And the fishermen on the boat in both stories are absolutely terrified to the point at which they think they're going to die. So the fishermen are panicking and there's two people asleep on the boat in the same way. Jonah is in a deep sleep. Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Exactly the same thing happens. The fishermen go up to Jesus, go up to Jonah, wake both of them and say, you need to do something about this. And then exactly the same result is there's a miraculous intervention and then the storm dies down. So in writing it like this, Mark is essentially asking us as readers, particularly if you were in the first century, you would have known the story of Jonah off heart. He's asking us to think of this as a parallel to the story of Jonah. Matthew brings it out even further. When you read Matthew's gospel, Jesus even utters the words, one greater than Jonah is here. When he says one greater, he's referring to himself. So what does this mean? Why is there this parallel between this story in Mark and between... um, and with the um, story of Jonah in the whale and with the storm. Well, they're identical apart from one difference, and the difference is this. In Jonah, in chapter 112, he wakes up and he basically says to the fishermen, if I die, then you'll live, and they throw him overboard, and then the storm calms down. Whereas in this story, we know, reading Mark from this perspective, the disciples didn't know at the time, is that later on, as Jesus goes on in his ministry, he's killed despite having done absolutely nothing wrong. And he's nailed to a cross, and he's brutally murdered so that he can calm the ultimate storms that happen in our life. On the cross, Jesus tames sin, all the things that we do to each other that genuinely hurt each other, all the stuff that we do that causes anxiety, the circumstances in our life that makes us anxious, makes us fearful, but also he destroys the power of the ultimate root of anxiety and of fear, and that is of death when he's resurrected from the cross. So here's the point. We can't control Jesus. He may not always do what we want him to do in the moment we want him to do it, but we can trust him. All Jesus is asking of his disciples in this story is to trust him. Do you have faith? Where is your faith? And depending on how we view faith, that either feels like something that's impossible or something that's incredibly 
easy. So often we think that faith is a little bit like a virtue, like it's something that we just need to try really hard to be better at. If only I had more faith, then I wouldn't feel this anxiety. If only I had more faith, then I wouldn't feel this fear. But that's absolute nonsense because it completely misunderstands what faith is all about. You see, faith isn't a virtue in Christianity. Faith is a gift that's given us to us by God. There's this brilliant story later on in the Gospel of Mark where this father goes to Jesus and says to Jesus, my son is um, oppressed by this demonic presence. Can you help me? And Jesus says to him, with faith, anything is possible. And then the man says the most profound response to him. He says, I have faith. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. What's he saying there? He's saying that faith isn't a virtue. We don't have to have more faith in order to feel peace. We just have to have faith in one person. We have to have faith in Jesus. It's a bit like if you're falling off a mountain, um, as you do, and you see a branch to reach out to, and you reach out and you grab the branch to stop yourself falling to certain death down below. Now, it really doesn't matter how much faith you have in that branch. Like That branch is either going to hold you or it's not going to hold you. The point is you had enough faith to reach out and grab the branch in the first place. And therefore, if the branch holds, then you know that your faith was trustworthy in the branch. But the point is it really doesn't matter to what extent we have faith. And it's exactly the same with Jesus. And it's exactly the same what that dad is saying to Jesus when he's asking him to heal his son. He's saying, I believe in you can you help me in my unbelief? And this is where it's profound for those of us that struggle with anxiety, struggle with fear, struggle with those circumstances in life that just keep bowling us over and it feels like they're relentless and never stop and it means we can't live life in all its fullness. All we need to do is we need to go to Jesus and we say, I have faith in you, Jesus. I don't understand why you're not answering this prayer right now. I don't understand why these circumstances in my life aren't changing. I know, Jesus, I can't control you. Not my will, but your will be done. But I have faith in your love. Why do I have faith in your love? Because I know you died on the cross for me. That you showed ultimate love, unconditional love, despite having done nothing wrong. And you rose again to defeat the power of everything that gives us anxiety. Now, it's always important to say when we talk about anxiety and we talk about fear and things of that nature and depression in church, like, I'm not saying don't go and see the doctor. I went to see the doctor. It's very important to go and seek medical help, particularly if you're struggling with anxiety and depression. And there are things that doctors can do to help, and there's many ways that we get help. And I've just had two years of incredible help from a doctor. But what I am saying as a pastor of a church and not a doctor is that in addition to that and before all that happens, let's go straight to Jesus first. Because in the moment when we're feeling like those waves are overcoming us and we're drowning, we have Jesus and his presence to help us. I just want to read you this psalm. This is Psalm 73. And it's, I think, one of the best psalms in there. It's good because, as with lots of the psalms, it starts out with lots of moaning. Um, so it has a good moan. 
And this is written by a guy, a guy called Asaph. Now, Asaph was the lead worshiper at the time. So he would have been the guy leading worship when the glory of God, the presence of God fell in Solomon's temple. He would have also been the worship leader following the ark around. So he knew what the presence of God felt like, right? But he's writing this psalm in the context of the temple being set up. They experienced that amazing time where the presence of God came down. But then the kingdom of Israel was being polluted by all these other religions, religions where they had multiple gods, where it wasn't worshipping the one true God of Israel and he's basically sitting in front of God and he's writing out a very good long moan about the things going on. He says this, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They've got no struggles. Always seems that way when you've got anxiety. Nobody else seems to have struggles. They seem to be doing absolutely fine. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence from their callous health. And he goes on complaining, 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 complaining. And then there's a turning point in the middle of the psalm. And he says this, verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply And then he says this, until I entered the sanctuary of God. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the Holy of Holies, the place where in Old Testament times they believed the presence of God was strongest. Now fast forward many years and we're in the new covenant now. We're not bound by the old covenant. Therefore, who is the temple in the New Testament? We are the temple. Where is the presence of God most evident and dwells so strong in us because of Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross? So here's the point of what he's trying to say in the psalm, and he sums it up at the end in terms of what that feels like. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? My flesh and my heart may fail. The circumstances around me might overcome me, but God is the strength and my portion forever. And then he ends and he says this, but as for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to dwell in the presence of God. The point of that psalm is this. Everything outside the presence of God is subject to distortion. As people of God, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us, if we're not spending time constantly coming into the presence of God, everything we experience out there is going to be distorted. It's going to feel like it's overwhelming us. It's going to feel like evil is winning. It's going to feel like the bad circumstances in our life are going to get us down and take us out unless we come into the presence of God again and again and again and again. And this isn't something we try really hard to do. Faith isn't a virtue. It's not something that we work at. It's a gift given by God. So when we feel those feelings of being overwhelmed, when we feel depression overtake us, when we feel anxiety start to rise up, we sit down and we go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I believe in you. Despite everything going on right now, please help me in my unbelief. Come and fill me with your presence. Give me the perspective from heaven. If you are here last week, um, you would have heard Pete speak. If you didn't listen to it, um, listen to it online, it's actually 
brilliant talk, and he shared a prophetic word for us as a church, which I thought was profound. In fact, there were three words which were brilliant, but the one word um, that relates to this that I just wanted to talk about, he said, it feels like this last year is, is like a swimming pool. And he said, the thing about swimming pools is that most of the noise is always made in the shallow end of the pool. Like lots of chaos, lots of noise in the shallow end, but you never hear from the people in the deep end. And he said, I feel like this last year, there's just been lots of noise, lots of stuff going on, lots of shouting, but not a lot of deep swimming. And obviously in the Bible, we know that water is metaphorically supposed to represent the presence of God. And therefore, as the people of God, what we need to make sure we're doing when we have that noise in our life, because that's what it feels like when we're anxious and when we feel out of control. It feels like there's just noise. It's constant noise. There's constant stuff running through our head. Whenever that happens, we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I in the shallow end or am I in the deep end? Where am I swimming right now? Because as Christians, our job is to do everything we can to try and jump in at the deep end, have our faith set in Jesus and be immersed to overflowing in his presence so that he can still our storms and our souls and give us peace. The famous verse in Philippians is where Paul says that God will grant you the peace that passes all understanding that goes beyond the circumstances. The promise isn't that God will basically resolve the circumstances that are causing anxiety. The promise is that he'll give us peace. And what does that act like? Well, it looks like it guards our heart and our mind. Guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's that inner battle, that inner noise, that if we keep coming back to Jesus, we'll experience his peace. So we're going to do that now. Let's stand.